Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today, we're going to be talking about the latest developments in the diagnosing, treating, and preventing of miscarriage. I think this is going to be an interesting show. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, Here's an idea of what you're going to hear. I want to reassure her and all the listeners here that um, there are very few things that you can do when you're pregnant to induce a miscarriage, that drinking... uh, um, a few glasses of um, an alcoholic drink during a pregnancy will not negatively impact the outcome of a pregnancy. Um, in fact, m- I get questions about all sorts of things like, you know, I did, I went on a hike or I went on an airplane trip or, um, you know, I, f- I fell off my bike or, mm-hmm. you know, we have all these types of questions where um, something happens early on in pregnancy and then um, later um, the miscarriage is diagnosed and then it's just natural to try to figure out what caused it and what, what did I do to, to cause it. And in fact, right. like I mentioned before, miscarriages that um, are due to embryonic defects, and that is by far, by far the largest cause of miscarriage, um, those things aren't, don't, can't be changed by some environmental um, act or exposure. I'm Dawn Davenport, the Director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Organization, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model, uh, which the advantages are, one of the advantages are, that we can archive all the shows, so we have this wonderful library of just superb guests and superb information for you. But another advantage to use, utilizing the podcast model for radio is that you can subscribe uh, to this show, and we would love it if you do. You can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or any of the, uh, if you whatever you are using to listen to this on your phone, on your uh, iPad, or on your computer. You can there's a subscribe button, or you could just go to our uh, the radio page of our website, which is creatingafamily.org/slash/radioshow, and that will take you, and there, you'll be able to subscribe there as well. The Creating a Family Radio Show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For many patients, cost can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatment. That's why Faring offers a savings card for their endometrium vaginal insert. This instant savings card offers up to $100 savings each month on your endometrium prescription for eligible patients. You can ask your doctor uh, for more details, and she or he will be certain to, to, to give those to you. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, couldn't happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased information and support to the patient community. And some of these wonderful gold sponsors include, excuse me, Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax Cryobank has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and is dedicated to supplying updated verified and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. They have seven offices in New Jersey and maintain IVF delivery rates well above the national average. We also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. 
Today we're going to be talking about the latest developments in uh, diagnosing, treating, and preventing miscarriage. Uh, our guest today will be Dr. Ruth Lathy. She is the director of the Recurrent Pregnancy Loss Program at Stanford University and Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Stanford University School of Medicine. She's board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility and has authored over 60 publications and is the incoming president for the Pacific Coast Reproductive Society. Welcome, Dr. Lathy, to Creating a Family. Hi, Don. Thank you for having me. Good. I, I want to start. Actually, you and I met at ASRM two years ago, and we uh, I will refer people to, it was a great video uh, interview I did with you on the dangers of, of BPB, BPA. Uh, so I, uh, um, if anybody's interested in that, please go to that, and you can put a face of Dr. Laffey with this, with this voice. Uh, Dr. Laffey, let's start with just one of the, just a, a, a basic question that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding out there on. How common is miscarriage? How common is it for women to lose a pregnancy? Well, Don, that's a great question. Um, miscarriage is surprisingly common. Uh, the most commonly quoted um, statistics for miscarriage includes the range of about 15 to 20% of all clinically recognized pregnancies will end in um, miscarriage. Uh, however, we do know from um, more detailed studies of women trying to conceive that approximately half of conceptions will be lost even before they're clinically recognized. So when we're talking about miscarriage, it's important to keep in mind that um, how we define it will determine how common it is. So we most commonly talk about miscarriage being once a pregnancy is documented by ultrasound and an uh, embryo is seen on ultrasound, um, about 15 to 20% of those will be lost prior to viability in the general population. So the 15 the 15 to 20 percent is after ultrasound, not after a positive pregnancy test. Correct. If we are, if we were to define miscarriage as loss after a positive pregnancy test, it would be at least double that. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't realize. So, uh, so it's at least double for, uh, of so approximately 30 to 40 percent uh, of right. all positive pregnancy tests. Will Correct. In, huh. That's yeah. even higher than I thought because, I mean, I've certainly heard the 15 to 20. Um, yeah. And I've heard higher numbers, but I wasn't sure when they were at what point. That's interesting. Um, how many women, so that, I mean, how, yeah. um, go ahead. I was just going to say that the the that that number is really looking just at the general population. We do see a range of risk of miscarriage based on the age of the woman. So if you're looking at a young woman, the say under age 35, that 15% is true, but if you're if we're talking about women who are over 35 or over 40, then the miscarriage rate is going to be significantly higher. What is the miscarriage rate for women let's say between 35 and 40? Between 35 and 40, it's probably about 25%. And then for women over 40, it's going to be uh, 40 to 50%. Right. And that and the increase for women um, as they age, I'm going to assume, is chromosomal, chromosomal abnormalities? Primarily, that's the main um, diagnosis that we see in women over uh, age 35, the increased incidence of chromosome defects. But we do know that uh, there are other defects in eggs and even in sperm that as we get older could contribute to miscarriage. Well, I was just going to ask that question is, do you see an increased miscarriage with uh, when the woman is not older but the father is? Some studies will support that um, Advanced paternal age is an independent risk factor for miscarriage. It's not quite as strong as a predictor as maternal age, but um, really large studies have shown a small incremental increase if the father is over age 45. Okay, so. But, it's but not quite small can... compared to the impact of maternal age. Okay, got it. So that's talking about miscarriage in general. But how common is Recurrent miscarriage, recurrent, and 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 then and what do we consider? How many is too many? How many how many miscarriages does it take before it, it gets the attention of the medical profession? And how common is that? How how, how many how many women have repeated? Miscarriage? 
So we can um, just talk general statistics with regard to that. Um, one, we do uh, worry about women when they're worried. So we worry with our patients often. If a, if a woman has had two miscarriages and um, would like to learn more about possible causes of miscarriage, then we want to see her and evaluate her and counsel her. Um, the strictest definition for repeat um, miscarriage is three or more uh, because um, the recurrence risk really starts to go up more after the third. However, we do have our guidelines that allow us and to start doing an investigation after the second miscarriage, particularly if the miscarriage is otherwise unexplained. So, for example, if we can't find an explanation in the um, miscarriage itself, then we start to look at other causes. You know, that's an, an interesting thing about trying to understand the cause. I don't think uh, a lot of women think about trying to bring in for evaluation um, that which has been expelled, uh, the, I guess at that point it would be an embryo or no, would it be, I'm not sure it would be an embryo or fetus, I'm not sure what at what point it would be. But is that something, if, if a woman is having a miscarriage and it's a second or, or more a miscarriage, does she need to do something um, to have uh, herself or the remains of the pregnancy evaluated um, to help figure out, or, or is that at that point too late? We, you know, the recommendations will vary by um, provider and by, you know, what the patient experience is, how far along she is in her pregnancy, whether we can do testing or not. Uh, in my practice, I do try to perform that kind of testing on any miscarriage, whether it's the second, third, fourth, even sometimes we'll do an evaluation at the time of the first miscarriage, depending on the circumstances. Uh, it is extremely helpful, I think, in the healing process and the planning process to do what we can do to help uh, couples understand the cause of their miscarriage. Uh, doing the chromosome test on the miscarriage specimen itself can provide answers in two-thirds to three-quarters of the cases. And for those cases, it is extremely um, uh, satisfying isn't quite the right word, but it does bring right. closure and understanding um, after a, you know, after a, a tragedy that what happened and why it's helpful. Now, we can't always get the answer, but when we can, it's helpful. Uh, and so that's why I recommend uh, trying to do it whenever possible. Okay, well, you've alluded to some of the causes, but let's uh, let's go into that um, a little more with uh, a little more detail. What is the most common cause for a pregnancy to not continue, for a pregnancy to stop, or a fetus to stop growing, or for whatever reason, for a miscarriage? So. Uh, the vast majority of miscarriages, whether it's the first or the second, third, or in the, even in the setting of multiple miscarriages, are the most common cause is defects in the pregnancy itself, in the embryo or in the growing pregnancy. Um, we're able to document that there's the wrong number of chromosomes in over half of those miscarriages. So that the development of the pregnancy stopped because the pregnancy itself was not healthy. And so um, a common misconception is that miscarriage is due to our bodies rejecting a pregnancy. But in fact, the most common cause of miscarriage um, is that the pregnancy itself stopped developing because it was unable to continue due to um, some sort of um, developmental defect that is lethal. Right, it would likely not have been able to support life. The life that that uh, the growing fetus would right. not have continued to grow. Okay, so fifty yeah. percent of the cases, you can identify yeah. chromosomal issues. All right, in the right. other fifty percent, uh, what are some of the common causes? So, chromos numeric chromosome abnormalities, meaning having the wrong number of chromosomes, is just one possible. Um, but very easily diagnosed fetal or embryonic defect. There can be multiple others that are not detected by that single test. So when we do more detailed assessment, and this is not typically done in standard practice, but 
can be done in sort of a research setting where we do something called embryoscopy, meaning that we put a little, you know, microscopic camera and look at the pregnancy. Was it developing normally or not? That we see that that at least half, if not more, than the pregnancies, even when the chromosomes are normal, have in some ways development developed abnormal. We see abnormally. We see cardiac defects, brain defects, limb defects, other things that say that there's some kind of genetic problem um, from the start that we just are, we can't always detect with our standard testing. So still, and I know that it's it's hard to prove and hard to believe sometimes if you're going through this, but the it is, I tell my patients all the time that it is the responsibility of the embryo to develop normally. And uh, if they don't have what it takes, then nature will figure that out and then and the pregnancy will stop or the development will stop. And it and then when we would either diagnose it at the time of miscarriage, at the time of an ultrasound, or potentially um, if the embryo is, has uh, arrested, then the hormone levels drop and the and the pregnancy will pass uh, due to the drop of hormones. So in most cases, is it that the embryo dies first or fails to continue to grow um, first? and then the body expels it, and it is not the body expelling the uh, a viable embryo? Is that how it usually works? It usually works that way. And and we see often, um, you know, we that patients will have no symptoms at all and be diagnosed with miscarriage just based on ultrasound or not seeing or hearing at heartbeat at that uh, first OB visit. So most, many, many times the pregnancy will have arrested weeks before it's, it's noticed by the mother. You are listening to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. And we are really glad to have you with us on this Creating a Family show talking about miscarriage, uh, the latest developments in diagnosing, treating, and preventing we primarily keep in touch with our audience through a twice-weekly e-newsletter to let you know about the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as about the upcoming week's blog topic and show topic and any other resources that we've added to our site that week, keeping in mind that all of our resources are offered without charge. Uh, to the patient community. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org, and it's on the top right-hand side. Uh, Dr. Lathy, you've talked about any other causes you want to mention. We were talking about causes, and we've identified numeric chromosomal abnormalities where the chromosomes are not lined up, you said, with over 50%. And then but even in in many of the remaining, you suspect there are some there's some form of a genetic connect, condition or something, even though we can't diagnose it yet, or or perhaps right. Uh, any other and 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 does it matter at the stage of the pregnancy as to the cause, uh, what the common causes are? Yeah, that's a, actually a really excellent question. We do see that um, miscarriages that occur in the first trimester, meaning the first 10 to 12 weeks, are much more likely to be due to chromosome abnormalities than miscarriages that are occurring much later. Um, and the reason for that is that these chromosome defects are um, severe and and lethal early on and they mm-hmm. they can present they typically present with miscarriages between 6 to 10 weeks um but like i mentioned sometimes they may present a little bit later if a woman is not um you know getting um frequent ultrasounds that a patient may miscarry at 8 or 9 weeks but n- doesn't get her next OB check until she's 12 weeks, and in which case she might um, be diagnosed a little bit later. So we we really think that the pregnancies that arrest in the first trimester, those are the ones that are highest, are most likely to be due to chromosome errors. What about in the second trimester? Pregnancy, so miscarriages in, are less yeah. common. We should add in the in the second trimester for certain. Um, yes. But so what are the more? Uh, but what are the causes that you more often see in second trimester losses. Right. So you're you're absolutely correct that miscarriage in the second trimester is extremely rare and in fact uh, most studies would 
suggests that about 95 to 98% of miscarriages will happen in the first trimester. So we're really only talking about 2 to 5% of miscarriages happening later, uh, which um, is should be extremely reassuring to women who have had miscarriage in the past. Uh, once they reach the second trimester, there's a very, very high chance of having a successful pregnancy. But your question was, um, what are the what is the chance that a second trimester miscarriage is due to a chromosome abnormality? Uh, and most studies would show that 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 chromosome abnormality in the second trimester is closer to five to ten percent. So it is still a, a a cause of second trimester miscarriage, but it is not quite as common a cause as it is in the first trimester. Well, if it's five to ten, then what is the other, you know, ninety-five to ninety to ninety-five uh, percent of mis- second trimester miscarriages? What causes them? So, second trimester miscarriages do have a more broad range of causes. Uh, A lot of uh, second trimester miscarriages are due to weakening of the cervix, meaning that a woman's cervix will just open um, uh, too early, and then an infection can come into into the uterus and cause a miscarriage, or the bag of water can break because the cervix is not protecting it very well. Um, so anatomic causes are um, are a frequent risk factor for second trimester miscarriage. Uh, we can also see that women with large fibroids or um, congenital uterine abnormalities, um, such as uterine septums or other um, abnormalities of the uterine walls can lead to um, second trimester miscarriage. Um, there are some, there, like in medicine and all areas of medicine, there are many cases that are uh, unexplained, meaning that we, we don't always have a good explanation for why the miscarriage occurred in the um, um, second trimester. But the good news is that um, if no risk factor is found, then the recurrence risk is extremely low. We have a couple of questions I want to get in now. One um, asked not to be identified. She has suffered two miscarriages. The second miscarriage, uh, she didn't say, but I'm I'm guessing both were in the first trimester. Uh, I'm shortening her question. Uh, and the uh, with her second, uh, she had had a couple of glasses of wine. She knew she wasn't supposed to, but she did. And she is uh, worried that the uh, couple of glasses of wine is what caused uh, her miscarriage and wanted to know what evidence there was. Uh, and I don't know, this is only, she didn't say anything about the first one, but this is on the second miscarriage that she was. Uh, she is uh, carrying around a lot of guilt that she caused the miscarriage by uh, drinking uh, a couple of glasses of wine. So I would, I get questions like this all the time, and I want to reassure her and all the listeners here that um, there are very few things that you can do when you're pregnant to induce a miscarriage. That drinking uh, um, a few glasses of um, an alcoholic drink during a pregnancy will not negatively impact the outcome of a pregnancy. Um, In fact, I get questions about all sorts of things like, you know, I did, I went on a hike or I went on an airplane trip or, um, you know, I I fell off my bike or, you know, we have all these types of questions where um, something happens early on in pregnancy and then um, later um, the miscarriage is diagnosed and then it's just natural to try to figure out what caused it and what what did I do to to cause it. And in fact, like I mentioned before, miscarriages that... um, are due to embryonic defects, and that is by far, by far the largest cause of miscarriage. Um, those things aren't, don't, can't be changed by some environmental um, act or exposure. So um, when we look at, you know, you ask what the evidence is that alcohol and uh, miscarriage is associated with miscarriage, there really isn't very good data that would say that alcohol increases the risk of miscarriage. Um, High and chronic use of alcohol during a pregnancy is associated with um, pregnancy complications and birth defects such as fetal alcohol syndrome. But that is if, you know, we don't really have a 
line in the sand of what a safe amount is, but it's most commonly seen in uh, women who are drinking regularly throughout their entire pregnancy, not just a few um, glasses here and there. So we do encourage uh, women to try to avoid alcohol in pregnancy, but we think uh, minimal use of alcohol is probably safe and would not necess- would not be linked with miscarriage. Okay, we have a- another question from Janity, and she wants to know, her questions are about progesterone and uh, and, uh, and progesterone, the use of progesterone therapy um, to prevent miscarriage. So I guess we're moving at this point. I probably should have saved the question into our how to prevent it, but let's go ahead and take her question. Um, uh, from a, a preventing standpoint, what is progesterone progesterone therapy, and is it effective? Uh, so progesterone is the hormone that our bodies produce in the um, early pregnancy to support a pregnancy. Um, The progesterone is a hormone that the ovaries produce after ovulation. So this is a a hormone that we produce naturally, and one of its purposes is to support early pregnancy. Um, There are... um, There are many studies that will associate low progesterone with increased risk of miscarriage. However, we don't know for sure if that's because the pregnancy itself is not healthy or if it's because the low progesterone is making the pregnancy not healthy. Um, Like I mentioned before, that we know that if there's a chromosome defect, then the pregnancy may not produce, may not like I, what I say, it may not do its job in stimulating the body to make the right amount of hormones to support the pregnancy, and that's part of why eventually the pregnancy is lost, because the pregnancy is not you know, doing its job to stimulate the progesterone. Um, there are some studies, there are many studies looking at this, um, that, but there are some studies that would support that in women who've had multiple miscarriages, that um, some women will benefit from progesterone therapy. Um, the hard part is really trying to figure out who's going to benefit and who is not going to benefit. Um, and so we often, we really do have a pretty low threshold for offering progesterone therapy in women who have had three or more miscarriages. However, if someone has does not have a history of miscarriage, or uh, maybe has only had one miscarriage, there really isn't a good study to say that adding progesterone in that case will help. The studies you talked about sounded like they were uh, studies that were being done after a pregnancy was already identified, after a woman was already pregnant. They looked at and said, okay, this woman has lower progesterone, so she's at an increased risk of miscarriage. And in those cases, you wouldn't know. Is it the progesterone, is the progesterone low because uh, the, the 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 pregnancy is not a viable one, or is the pregnancy is the pregnancy not viable because the progesterone is low? But what about studies that would say, having looked at women before pregnancy, to say what their normal or do we have a normal level of progesterone? You it's mentioned that it was something our bodies produced during pregnancy. Is there no baseline that would uh, exist prior to uh, a pregnancy? Um. Well, there are normal values for progesterone levels, and as a woman cycles, um, the progesterone level typically is low before ovulation and then rises after ovulation. However, the normal range is quite wide, and uh, it's very hard to get an accurate assessment of, you know, adequacy of progesterone production because progesterone is secreted in sort of a pulsatile fashion. So if I checked a progesterone level at 9 a.m. and then at 10 a.m. and then at 11 a.m. on the same woman and, you know, on the same day, I would get three different answers because the levels in the blood vary, you know, widely just because of how our bodies secrete progesterone. So it's hard to tell, um, based on a blood test, if the amount of progesterone is adequate. Um, Sometimes we will look at symptoms um, to try to guess if the progesterone level is high enough. And some of the symptoms that we look at that um, make us as clinicians worry that their progesterone level is not high enough are are the characteristics of that second half of the uh, menstrual cycle. So a typical, from the time of ovulation to the time of the next period, 
uh, in a normal cycle is typically about 14 days, and the uh, and the range of normal is kind of 12 to 15. If we see women are having um, shorter luteal phases, meaning a woman gets her period 10 days after ovulation or nine days after ovulation, that tells us maybe that progesterone production is not enough, that the progesterone level might be dropping too soon. Um, there are other studies that look try to look at the level of the progesterone within the uterus itself, because that's the that's what we really care about, not what's in the blood. We care about what's in the uterus. Um, but those studies also have been uh, have shown that it's very difficult to predict if there's enough progesterone production. So we use our our um, sort of best evidence that we have on the subject and the clinical uh, presentation to try to guess who needs it and who doesn't. Um, but in reality, for a woman who's had three or more miscarriages um, and there's no other explanation, this is a common therapy that we will often use. Is it effective? Is there evidence well, to say that women who have uh, received progesterone compared to women who have not are less, are less likely to have a, a miscarriage? Some studies say that it's, it, it is effective, but others have shown no difference. Um, and part of that is just the selection of who's getting the medicine and who's getting into a trial. How soon after a pregnancy is recognized the progesterone has started um, and that kind of thing. So like I said, I think probably the reason some studies show benefit and some don't is just the um, timing of the use of progesterone and possibly the patients who are in the trial itself. Um, the good news for uh, women with repeat miscarriage, um, or one or more miscarriages, is that there is an extremely high success rate with no therapy, um, which is why finding a therapy that is better than no therapy is often difficult, meaning that a woman who's had one or even two miscarriages could have a 70 or 80% success rate in her next pregnancy with no therapy. So finding a therapy that's more than more effective than that is extremely difficult because uh, miscarriages, the baseline risk for miscarriage is um, right in that same range. And there is a, a, a general concern about using any therapy or, or introducing anything, any type of drug, um, natural or otherwise, into a pregnancy because we've certainly had uh, some sad histories of, of therapies that have uh, cause continual uh, problems. Thamilhot, uh, uh, no, I'm saying that wrong. Uh, the Thalidomide. Uh, uh, Thalidomide. I couldn't <laughs> say that. Was, no, yeah, thalidomide. And DES as well. Um, and DES, yeah. Yeah, um, and then the concern with DES is now even in the children of women who have been exposed in utero. I know. Uh, so it's... Uh, so there's a temptation to try uh, not to – It's a, it's a, uh, in many ways I feel like doctors are in a catch-22 because I think we should all be concerned uh, about doing something, but sometimes doing nothing uh, is just so heartbreaking. Well, I think, you know, you, you outline a very common dilemma in our field, meaning um, that it is hard to do nothing. But in reality, for the women who are able to stick with standard therapies, and in some cases the standard therapy is to take care of yourself and try again, um, has, a, has an extremely high success rate, and therefore it's not heartbreaking, meaning it's just hard. It's mm. not that the outcomes are poor. Um, so I think that's hard. We do struggle in our field um, looking at – um, how aggressive should we be with trial and error or with therapies that we're not sure are going to help, but we are not sure are going to hurt either. Um, it's, it's an extremely difficult dilemma because um, after someone has been through two or three miscarriages, um, it's extremely uh, difficult to try again and do the same yeah. thing. That's exactly um, right. So and, you know, and, and the anxiety factor is so high as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, the next question is is a um, uh, is a controversial one. It's from Catherine. She wants to know the real scoop on immune issues and miscarriage. Uh, let me uh, point out 
Actually, I'll do our next little thing. Uh, you are listening to Creating a Family. Uh, our mission is to provide unbiased, medically accurate education and support to those touched by infertility or adoption. We have extensive resources on miscarriage, uh, as well as on uh, some resources on the next issue we're going to, in fact, uh, a number of resources as well, on the immunological connection uh, between um, infertility and, and miscarriage. Um, and you can find all of those at creatingafamily.org. Click on the word in, uh, infertility in the horizontal menu. Then click on infertility A to Z resources. And you can go to miscarriage and you can go to the uh, immuno, immunological connections uh, um, page as well to get that. Um, now, Dr. Laffey, and Dr. Ruth Laffey is our guest today. And she is the director of the Recurrent Pregnancy Loss Program at Stanford University, and she is a reproductive endocrinologist. Uh, now, Dr. Laffey, go back to the question on uh, immune issues. It's a pretty, it's it's a very controversial uh, subject in the world of infertility, uh, but in specific, we're talking about uh, immunological issues that might increase the risk of miscarriage. So, as Catherine said, what is the scoop? <laughs> That's a you are absolutely correct. This is a um hotbed of controversy in our field right now. I think that the majority of us in the field would like to know what the real scoop is on um miscarriage on miscarriage and immune um causes. There's a lot of research going on uh in this area and we're all looking for what is the answer to that question, what are the best um, tests and treatments to identify and to help women who may be having immunologically based miscarriages, but we just have not found it yet. We have not, there is no conclusive um, study or treatment out there that would identify or change the course uh, of the next pregnancy for uh, women in, in these cases. So uh, we all probably think there may be something there, but we're stuck with um, this difficulty of not really knowing what it is and how to test for it and how to treat it. Um, there have been a number of um, immune therapies that have been proposed for the treatment of recurrent pregnancy loss and when subject to um, rigorous trials have shown no benefit over um, placebo. So, What are some for of those example, treatments? Yeah, give us an example. So people of have of looked at the use of steroids to suppress the immune system or um, another common one is uh, intravenous immunoglobulins, IVIG. Uh, so a large randomized trial compared IVIG to saline infusion and the miscarriage rate was the same in both groups. Um, and that there have been many other studies looking at it that have shown um, essentially no difference um, in outcome with and without these therapies. So as it, it comes back to the question that you asked before, you know, are there risks of these therapies? Are there benefits of these therapies? And uh, is the trade-off trade worth it? Um, and right now we don't have any approved treatments um, or proven treatments to um, that are designed to sort of modulate the immune system to make it, um, to change the outcome of a pregnancy. So uh, current recommendations are that these treatments not be used. You spoke of an immunology-based miscarriage. Do those miscarriages look any different from other uh, cause, miscarriages caused by other reasons? We don't know. We don't know which, again, like I said, we are looking for, you know, it's it's a, um, how, do, how do I term it? It's, it's, something, it's something that we're looking for, but we have yet to prove. So we don't know which miscarriages are immunologically based. Yeah. Um, so they look the same so from the outside, even though there may could. be a different cause. Yeah, we can't tell by just, you know, when they are in the pregnancy or any of the symptoms leading up to it or anything like that. Exactly. We don't know. We don't know who um, is experiencing these problems, and therefore we don't know. Um, it's it's very hard to target therapies to the people who need them. Okay. What environmental factors can increase the risk 
of uh, having, or are there, I shouldn't say what I should, uh, are there environmental factors, environmental exposures uh, that can increase the risk of a woman having a miscarriage? Um, well, um, the the one that we spoke of the last in our last interview was the environmental toxins issue. We talked mm-hmm. about uh, BPA exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be others too. This is just the one that we studied and has um, really been shown in several studies to be linked with increased rates of uh, miscarriage. Um, there are other environmental factors that um, that we also pay attention to are um, maternal weight. So we know that, for example, um, obesity is a independent risk factor for miscarriage um, over and above uh, age. So whereas I, we talked earlier in this hour about age being um, a very strong risk factor for miscarriage, the second strongest uh, risk factor for miscarriage is maternal weight. So women who are overweight um, are at significant increase of miscarriage, both in the first and second trimester. Um, that's an environmental um, factor that we talk to our patients about often. Um, now, let me ask the uh, question mm-hmm. about weight. Um, how, uh, how, much, uh, how, how much, at what point, what do you consider the increase, at what point for the BMI is, are you at an increased risk? How uh, how obese do you have to be, or do you have to be how much? How overweight do you have to be? Do you have to be obese, or is it even a somebody who is in the overweight category at an increased risk? Well, it does appear that there there may be a dose response effect. So um, BMI, just um, for the listeners too, should know that it's a ratio of height to weight. So it's not just your absolute weight; it's how heavy you are for your height. Um, and um, a, a healthy weight is typically with a BMI considered less than 25. Um, we are starting to see, and in our studies, we've seen increased rates of miscarriage even starting at a BMI over 25, um, but um, a more dramatic increase with a BMI over 30. Um, and this is true for both um, fertile women and or women with no history of miscarriage as well as women with a history of miscarriage. Uh, many studies, a handful of studies, I shouldn't say many, um, have shown that this excess miscarriage rate is not due to chromosome abnormalities but due to other factors, um, meaning that when we test the miscarriage specimens uh, of women who are overweight, um, we do we see that that excess or the that they ha- they seem to have more chromosomally normal miscarriages than um, uh, than we would expect for the women with normal weights. So we think that the excess is not due to um, chromosome problems, but other factors in the environment. That's um, one of the tests we use to try to figure that out. Well, let me ask a question. Let's say a woman has a, a- is overweight, either uh, with a a body mass index over 25 or even over 30. Um, And she is pregnant, and she wants to reduce her chances of of a miscarriage. We don't think in terms of of asking for women to restrict their food intake during pregnancy. Um, So is it safe for a woman to try to lose weight during pregnancy, or should she at that point just be trying not to gain weight? Or, or gain much weight. Maybe I should back it up. Gain much weight. Right. So um, there's a couple questions in the question there. Um, the, <laughs> yes, you're the, right. The, our first goal would be to optimize health pre-pregnancy. Um, so our so the best option is to um, try to um, help women ab- attain a healthy weight prior to conceiving. Um, so. That's one. What if a woman is already pregnant? That can't be changed. But we do see that a secondary risk factor is how much weight is gained during the pregnancy. So, um, um, what we call gestational weight gain, meaning the how much weight a woman gains in pregnancy, is an additional risk factor for pregnancy complications. And that is one that can be modified after pregnancy. Um, we have some guidelines for how much sort of the target weight gain for a pregnancy is based on sort of the 
the preconception weight. And so for a woman who is a normal weight, the recommendations might be 25 to 35 pounds, but for someone who's overweight, maybe 15 to 20 pounds, and someone who's obese or extremely obese, the recommendations are zero to 15, so that we don't ever really recommend that women lose weight in a pregnancy, but for women who are overweight or uh, obese, we do recommend um, trying to minimize the amount of weight that is gained during the pregnancy because that can um, help improve outcomes. Is there any evidence of an increase in birth defects or other problems in the children born to women who have experienced, let's say, grade three or greater pregnancy losses? Whew, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> So, well, you know what? Yes, I didn't tell you yes it was going to be no. easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say yes and no. So it does depend on the cause of the repeat miscarriages. So in a case where a woman has a uterine defect or uterine abnormality that is leading to her re- repeat pregnancy loss, those, those uterine abnormalities are also risk factors for later complications in pregnancies like preterm delivery and things like that or growth restriction. Um, something called, um, if somebody has um, something called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which is a hypercoagulable state, um, in pregnancy, then um, there does seem to be an increased risk of pregnancy complications later on. So they're, um, they undergo increased surveillance and often um, end up with um, the early deliveries if needed. Uh, but in cases that wait, wait, let me miscarriage... just stop you. Wait, let me stop you. And so the early deliveries would be the re- the birth defects would come from an early delivery, not necessarily from anything uh, associated with the miscarriage per se, or earlier miscarriage, but the fact that the right. woman has a condition that makes it less likely that she can carry the, ba- the, the, the baby to term. Am I right on yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, other causes, so if, a pa- if the parents have a chromosome abnormality, um, like a translocation, or which is a rearrangement of chromosomes, then um, the ongoing pregnancies are at slightly increased risk of having chromosome abnormalities too. So in those cases, um, additional testing would be recommended. However, in cases where women have truly unexplained, meaning that all their tests are normal, their likelihood of having a healthy pregnancy is very high once they sort of get past that first trimester, which is the highest risk time. So well, it, 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 chromosomal abnormalities are by far the, the largest cause, uh, certainly in the, um, by far the, uh, the predominant cause in the first trimester. Um, but if some of those chromosomal abnormalities are, uh, if, if the pregnancy, if, if it's not lethal, are are they at more are women who have had numerous not not just one but we're talking numerous uh uh more three or more uh pregnancy losses are they at higher risk for a child being born with a chromosomal abnormality um this the the simple answer is no however there are there was one really large study uh, out of San Francisco, I think even 10 years ago now, eight or 10 years ago, that showed that um, the number of prior miscarriages did slightly increase the risk of having a chromosome abnormality at the time of CVS or amniocentesis, meaning in an ongoing pregnancy, they looked at it, they had a, in the pregnancy diagnosis, perinatal diagnostic center where women undergo genetic testing of their pregnancies, they did find that number of prior miscarriages was a minor, a slight risk factor for having an abnormality at the time of um, amniocentesis or or prenatal testing. Uh, however, this difference was very small, a fraction of a percentage. Uh, so you'd have to – it only showed up when they looked at tens of thousands of women uh, because the difference is so so slight. Okay. So not much, if, if at all, not much. 
Yeah, tiny, tiny, tiny difference. But um, they they use that to suggest that there are probably some populations of women or, or couples who make more abnormal embryos than others. And we don't really know why. The vast majority of abnormal embryos will miscarry. But once in a while, you know, nature's... Um, ability to detect those abnormalities, some will, some will sneak through. But uh, so it seems that there are some families that do have a slight increased risk over the general population. Okay. I'd like to take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show as well as all the resources at Creating a Family. We have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson, a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. We have Cryos International, a New York sperm bank, which is part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. Cryos New York offers donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. And we also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They were a pioneer in offering embryo donation and embryo adoption services to clients throughout the world through their program, which they call the Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. What type, uh, Dr. Lathy, what type of doctor should a woman who has had more than, let's say, three or three or more miscarriages see? Um, if she is seeing her regular, first of all, let's assume she has not struggled to get pregnant, so she is not already seeing a reproductive endocrinologist or infertility doctor. Should Is it important that she switch from a regular uh, uh, OBGYN to some type of specialist, or should she seek out a uh, recurrent pregnancy loss program? Well, I think that it depends on the doctor that she's seeing at the time. So there are some general OBGYNs who are up-to-date on um, diagnosis and treatment of recurrent pregnancy loss, whereas others, once it reaches three or more, will refer out to a specialist. And because most of these miscarriages are due to, are happening early in the pregnancy or even due to potentially preconception factors, uh, the best place for a woman to go with repeat miscarriage if they're occurring in the first trimester is to a reproductive endocrinologist or if they live in an area where a recurrent pregnancy loss program exists, then that would be ideal. However, there aren't as many recurrent pregnancy loss programs scattered throughout the country as we would like to have. That is uh, it's a growing sure. it's really a growing field and is it growing? Well that's good to hear. We're trying to um um increase uh increase in this area and make sure that um, recurrent pregnancy loss programs are available to more women. Um it's um it's just it's a it's a slow process to get people who are uh, well trained and interested into the right places. Um, so I, I think that if there if there is not a recurrent pregnancy loss program uh, accessible to a patient, then she should go to a reproductive endocrinologist. And what is the what's the latest research showing now as far as okay a woman goes to a infertility clinic. The question then comes, does it make sense to consider IVF? And this is for a woman, let's assume, who has not had trouble getting pregnant. Her troubles, uh, her problem is staying pregnant, not getting pregnant. So she easily uh, gets pregnant. Uh, does it make sense to consider something like IVF genetic testing? And if so, at what point do you do that? Because you certainly have... Talk about a significant you know, intervention as far as it's a, a, a significant treatment. To say nothing of cost. So, at exactly. what point is that a um, is that a preferred treatment option? It's a complex question as well. Um, I it it's like any treatment that we apply in the case of recurrent pregnancy loss. We want to look at the pros and cons of doing the therapy as well as we want to look at the the risks of not doing the therapy. Um, in vitro fertilization with genetic screening of embryos is a very appealing um, treatment option because it does seem to reduce the number of chromosomally abnormal miscarriages that are occurring. Um, however, we have to keep in mind that the primary goal of treatment is to get a baby. 
and women are coming to us because they um, want to have a baby. And um, the like I mentioned before, the success rate with no treatment is so high, and obviously no treatment is off, often you know affordable <laughs> to most of our patients um, compared to the cost of IVF and uh, genetic testing of embryos. Um, so it's it's. It's difficult because of the invasive nature of in vitro fertilization and genetic screening of embryos. And um, although it's likely to reduce the absolute number of miscarriages, the big question that we have and that we have to stay focused on is, is it really getting more babies for our patients? Um, and is it worth the additional cost for the t difference in outcome? Uh, where we're, we've done a cost-effectiveness analysis on the use of G PGD, or um, pre-implantation genetic testing of embryos in combination with in vitro fertilization. And uh, we found that it costs um, over $100,000 to prevent one miscarriage uh, using this therapy. So it's a pretty big price tag uh, for uh, women who seemingly don't need the treatment for any other reason. Um, these are things that we discuss. Some patients still choose to do it because um, after everything they've been through with prior miscarriages, they um, want to go through any type of therapy that could reduce their risk of miscarriage. Um, on the other hand, many women will um, shy away from such an invasive therapy out of concern for risks and or costs. Um, and I, we see uh, very high success rates actually with both approaches. So um, part of our job as clinicians is to give unbiased advice and to um, tell our, make sure our patients understand what they're choosing um, over um, one treatment over the other and what the best thing for her might be different than what the best thing is for her neighbor or her friend or cousin or whoever else is facing the same questions. So what is the likelihood of a successful pregnancy resulting in a healthy birth for a woman who has had three or more, let's let's break it up into a trimester. So let's say um, three or more first trimester uh, losses, pregnancy losses, with no treatment, what are what is her likelihood if she keeps trying of having a healthy uh, baby? And, um, and break that down. If you want to give a time period with the next number of years or whatever, give that as well. Yeah. So we actually have um, some really nice observational data from large cohorts in Europe um, of women with um, unexplained repeat miscarriage, meaning three or more. The simple answer is the, the success rate with no treatment is right around 75 to 80 percent for most uh, women in, in, and most trials looking at just pure observation. So it's a pretty good chance of overcoming the history. And the majority will be successful within the, first, within the next um, pregnancy. So um, that should be reassuring. Um, the, the one caveat to that is that most of those studies were looking at younger women. And when we stratify the, the, you know, the likelihood of achieving a successful pregnancy by age, we see that the, the likelihood is lower for women who are over 40. Uh, most studies showing that instead of a 75% success rate, it might be more like um, a 60%, 55 to 60%. So still a good chance of success in women over 40, even with multiple miscarriages, but not quite as good as if the woman is presenting at a younger age. Okay, now let's move to the second trimester. So a woman who has had repeated second trimester miscarriages, what is her likelihood of a successful uh, pregnancy with a healthy baby uh, on her um, within, say, a year? So that's a more difficult question, primarily because there aren't that many women who have had three or more second trimester losses. It's just much more rare. Um, in, in some cases, if we find a cause and it's a treatable cause, then the success rate is extremely high. However, in cases where there are three or more late losses and no cause is found, the success rate is probably much lower. So we don't have exact numbers to tell women you know, as, as a general number like we do for the first trimester losses just because the causes are different uh, and 
um, some of them uh, are still largely unknown. And I want to end uh, with a comment that we got that's it's really not a question. It's more of a comment, but I think it reflects some of the frustration that exists in uh, with women who have had miscarriage. She says, I'd like to know why we have to be treated alongside pregnant women subject to images of fetal development given ineffective sympathies, uh, such as there, there was something wrong, it's common, next pregnancy should be normal, you can always try again soon, blah, blah, blah. Uh, also, she wants to know, well, let's just, well, I'll go ahead and read this. Also, she wants to know, why are we not offered counseling, referrals, hospital chaplains, et cetera, to deal with the emotions afterwards? So she has a number of, like I say, although she's phrasing them as questions, they're really more of a statement. I think the first one is, uh, let's talk about that, and that is uh, from a, a doctor's perspective. I mean, what is considered, how do you uh, emotionally support patients? Um, who are either in the midst of experiencing a miscarriage or are uh, pregnant after having already suffered many of them it's it's a hard thing because you've also you've got other people in your in your waiting room who are pregnant you do have images of fetal development around which you know mm-hmm. can be very reassuring for many women but might be hard for women who have experienced a miscarriage um and the sympathies that she has found ineffective are in fact much of what we've said today it is common. There likely was something wrong chromosomally with the um, uh, with the fetus. Um, your next pregnancy very well could be normal. Blah blah blah, as she said. Yeah. So, um, how do you, as a as a doctor who treats, um, of course, in your case, you're treating primarily women who have had uh, repeated losses. But how mm-hmm. about doctors who are not in that, who are not um, who are not treating? How how should they? What should we expect as a patient? And and how can doctors better help support? miscarriage uh, patients? Yeah, I think this question uh, brings up a very, very, very important point, which is that um, this is more than just a medical diagnosis, that this is um, does affect women um, and couples and families um, very deeply on an emotional level. We know that the incidence of that postpartum depression actually can occur after a miscarriage um, and is even more common the more miscarriages that a woman will have been through, whereas you know, it's not a perfect statistic. After one miscarriage, the depression is about risk of depression is about 10%. After two, about 20, and after three, about 30%. So a lot of patients with repeat miscarriage do have signs and symptoms of clinical depression, which then make it very hard to um, um, proceed with another treatment or another pregnancy because of all of the um, profound effects of depression. So um, what I what I try to do with my patients, and we always can, you know, learn from our patients' experiences, is to just bring up this issue of how emotionally challenging it may be. And for some women, it, it surprises them how deeply it affects them. Um, and the awareness that this is a real problem and an extremely common problem, make sure that we have resources available to patients um, for referral for counseling. As OBGYNs, we're not trained counselors or therapists, we, but we should be trained uh, to recognize um, the signs and symptoms of depression and anxiety, which are very common after miscarriage, and to have a um, referral network or a group of providers that can support our patients through these challenging times. Um, I would, it's the issue about being surrounded by pregnant women um, and images of babies and things like that is um, something that later in pregnancy is hard to avoid um, because of the nature of an obstetrician's office. However, when a patient uh, or a woman is seeing a reproductive endocrinologist, somebody who only focuses on fertility and miscarriage and early pregnancy disorders, that um, it's unlikely that there will be a lot of, um, you know, advanced pregnancies sitting in the waiting room or being surrounded by that. So um, it is one benefit of, see, of going to a um, 
reproductive endocrinologists. And, you know, we try to get away from calling ourselves fertility specialists, even though um, that's a common term and it does describe a lot of what we do. We really are, you know, reproductive medicine specialists and we specialize in, um, you know, the preconception and periconception period and um, really getting people past the first trimester. That's our goal. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Well, let me remind everybody that if you have enjoyed this show and want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. If you have iTunes on your phone or your computer, just type in the words creating a family and the rankings ratings pop up. So does the rankings actually. Um, and if you've got an extra minute, please leave a comment. We would really appreciate it. You can also access this rating system um, by going to creatingafamily.org slash radio show uh, and click on iTunes, and it will take you right there as well. Thank you, Dr. Ruth Laffey, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Um, if uh, To our audience, if you want to participate in a discussion of the topics of this show, please check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. And to get more information on either Dr. Lathy or on the Recurrent Pregnancy Loss Program at Stanford, uh, Dr. Lathy, can you give us that uh, that website address? Sure. Probably the easiest one is to go to um, fertility um, dot Stanford Children's with an S at the end uh, dot org. That's the website for our um, group here, and there's some information about um, our programs as well there. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening and joining us today, and I look forward to seeing you next week. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and lead gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.